Well, welcome today. If you are new today, glad that you're joining us. My name is Jonathan. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, you know, as a, as a pastor, I have the privilege of officiating at all kinds of weddings, and I love going to weddings. I love it because, I mean, people are happy. The couple is in love. Everything is beautiful. It's, they're just great events. But you know, I've been to quite a few weddings, and over the course of the years, I've seen some things where everything didn't go exactly the way it was planned. And I'll bet you've been to weddings too, where that's the case. It's always interesting to see what happens. I remember one time I was, I was actually early for the, the, the ceremony. The ceremony and the reception were happening at the same place. And I was waiting out in the parking lot because as a pastor, you never want to be late for the wedding. And I remember watching this car pull up right to the front doors. And, uh, and the person got out of the car and they opened the trunk. And in the trunk, there was the wedding cake. And they lifted up the wedding cake. And then something went wrong and they spilled the entire wedding cake all over the trunk of their car. And they scooped it back up, put it back together, closed the trunk of the car, got in the car, backed out, and drove off. And, but later at the wedding, I saw that cake. It did not look like the same cake. But there was at least a cake there. But it was just funny to see this thing happen. I was at another wedding where uh, in the middle of the ceremony, literally, the bride is here and the groom is here. They're facing one another. And, and in the middle of the ceremony, his cell phone rings. And he answers it. He pulls it out. He says, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, 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 bye. He answers the phone in the middle of the ceremony. You should have seen the look on his bride's face. She was not impressed. And, uh, and uh, there's a couple other instances like that. The one wedding that I never got to go to, this was before I was a pastor. I was invited to go. I didn't go, but my friend came back and said, you missed a great wedding. I said, oh yeah, tell me about it. She said, well, it took place on a day. It was a summer day. It was sweltering hot in this old uh, wooden, this big old wooden church. And she said it was so hot in there that in the middle of the ceremony, one of the, the groomsmen fainted. He just, whew, like a sack of potatoes, hit the ground. And as everyone looked at him, the groomsman behind him, beside him fainted. Boom, down he went. And as everyone was getting up, or a couple of people were getting up to help them, one of the bridesmaids passed out and fell over. And when she did, she knocked over the candelabra. It was, uh, had candles on it. And, and the candles lit the carpet of the church on fire. And she told me how she'd run up there and, and she's stomping out the fire and everyone's everywhere. She said, that was a great wedding. I mean, there was tons of entertainment. And... Uh, it's just a, I was like, oh, that would have been quite the wedding. I mean, we, we see these weddings like that. We never forget that kind of a wedding. And uh, the, the story that John, the Apostle John, tells us next in his account of the life of Jesus is about a wedding that Jesus and his apostles were at. And it was the kind of wedding that you also wouldn't soon forget. The wedding took place at a, at a village called Cana, just a, not a far from where Na Nazareth, where Jesus is, was from. And um, his mother was there, as well as Jesus and his disciples. So that suggests that this wedding was the wedding of a close relative or a close family friend. And probably that his mother Mary was involved in planning aspects of the wedding. And the problem at this wedding was that they ran out of wine. Now, running out of wine was a big deal. That, that was a major issue in those days. You see, 
the, the weddings in those days didn't just happen for a couple hours in the afternoon. They were sometimes a week-long event with all kinds of feasting and, of course, wine at all of the meals along the way. And, uh, and, and the groom's side was expected to provide all of the meals and supply all of the wine. And to run out of wine was not only a major embarrassment, an incredible humiliation for the family, but there's evidence that sometimes it was grounds for a lawsuit from the bride's family against the groom's family. So these people, they took their weddings and their wine very, very seriously. And the fact that they had run out of wine, this was a major issue. Here's what John tells us happens. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some, of, some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, now be, the water now become wine and did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, uh, everyone serves the good wine first when people have drunk freely, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So they run out of wine at this wedding and Jesus turns water into wine. Now that's a great party trick. I mean, clearly Jesus is the kind of person that you want to invite to your parties. Except that it wasn't a party trick at all. Rather, it's what John calls the first of Jesus' signs. It's the first miracle that Jesus did. And it was an incredibly symbolic, incredibly powerful signal, a statement of the radical thing that Jesus was about to do in the world. And anyone who was paying attention would realize what it was that Jesus was doing. And so let's go back and look more carefully at what exactly is going on when Jesus turns the water into the wine. Jesus and his disciples, they're there at the wedding. They run out of wine. And his mother comes to him and says, Jesus, you need to do something. And Jesus responds this way. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, just a quick aside. When Jesus addresses his mother as woman, in our, in our culture, that can feel a little bit disrespectful. Like, I don't know about you, but if I ever addressed my mother as woman, my father would have had a significant interaction with me that would have reminded me that you would never address your mother as woman. But you have to understand that in the Greek, the, the word that is used there is incredibly respectful. It is deeply courteous. Kind of the best, but, but it's hard to translate. Probably the, the best kind of translation that we could kind of think of is like, is like in the southern United States when a, when a, when a young, young man speaks to an older woman and he says, ma'am. Or maybe the old English expression, my lady, right? It's, it's courteous and endearing. And so you just need to know that Jesus is not in any way being disrespectful to his mother here. Quite the opposite. 
Okay? But, but he goes on to say this. It's not my issue. It's not my time. Because you see, Mary in that moment was looking at the exact situation, at, at the crisis right before her, right before them and saying, we're going to have a major crash here. We're going to have a major issue if you don't do something. But Jesus, Jesus is seeing the, de- the wedding in a totally different light. Jesus is seeing it from a much broader perspective. You see, in that world, it was widely accepted that that the wedding was a symbol of the joy of God's reign. In fact, Jesus, at another point, compared how he and his disciples lived in contrast to the way that John the Baptist and his disciples lived. He, He compared them to, like, guests at a wedding feast. In fact, a number of different places throughout Jesus' ministry, he compares the kingdom of God to a wedding feast. So for Jesus, a wedding had incredible symbolic meaning. It was much more than just an event. And why? The Old Testament prophets had prophesied that in the Messianic age, when the Messiah came, that the wine would flow liberally. I mean, listen, listen to the prophet Joel. He says this. In that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and the hills will flow with milk. Water will fill the stream beds of Judah and a fountain will burst forth from the Lord's temple. And the prophet Amos says this, the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. Wine was a symbol of the coming of the Messiah. And, and the marriage feast was a symbol of the joy of God's reign. And so now Jesus is at this wedding feast where the wine has run out. And his mother comes to him and says, do something. Now Mary doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. You have to understand, at this point, Jesus has never performed a miracle. So it's not like Mary is coming and saying, hey, snap your fingers and make something happen. No, no. Mary just knows her son, she knows his character, and she knows that she can trust whatever the issue is with him and that he'll deal with it. And so she just comes and she says, you know, Jesus, I'm going to leave this with you. And then she turns to the servants and she simply says, do whatever he tells you to. It's interesting, right? I mean, sometimes, sometimes there, when there's a crisis in our world, we're like Mary. All we can see is the problem right in front of us. All we see is that things are going south, that there's trouble on the home front or or on the western front or, or that the house is burning down around us. I mean, whatever it is, we just see the crisis right in front of us. And so we take it to Jesus. But, but, But unlike Mary, our temptation is to tell Jesus what we think he needs to do, when he needs to do it, how he needs to do it, and why he needs to do it right now. But Jesus often sees the exact same situation that we're in, the the same problem from a different perspective, from a a broader perspective. And and the challenge for us is to be like Mary. The challenge for us is to say, Jesus, here's the problem. Please help me. And I don't know how you're going to do it. I mean, if you would, my preference would be for you to miraculously solve the problem right now. But maybe you're going to do it slowly. Slowly. Maybe you're going to solve it through me. Maybe through someone else. Maybe you're going to bring a solution by writing something in the sky. But maybe it's just by quietly causing it to go away. I don't know, Jesus. I don't know, but, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to, 
do whatever you tell me to do. To pray, to go, to seek, to worship, to wait, if that's what you call me to do. Whatever it is, I'm simply going to leave it with you. I trust you. That's what Mary does. She leaves it with Jesus. She trusts him. She goes back to the wedding. So what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus turns to the servants and he instructs them to take these six huge jars, these, these stone jars, and fill them to the brim with water and then to take a cup out of that, those jars and bring it to the, to the master of the feast. He's like the catering director. And when that happens... When that happens, it's his turn to be a little bit embarrassed. Because you see, what he tastes is the finest Merlot, Chardonnay, Riesling, Pinot, Pinot Noir. I mean, whatever, whatever it was, it was the finest wine that he had ever tasted. And he kind of goes over to the, to, to the groom and whispers in his ear like, I think we made a mistake. Because we should have served this wine first before everyone's been drinking a bunch. Because what they've got there is the good stuff. Jesus turns all this water into wine. And John calls this miracle Jesus' first sign. Now, it's interesting that that's the language that John uses. Because all the other gospels, when Jesus performs a miracle, that's what they call it. They call it a miracle. They use the Greek word dynamis, from which we get the word dynamite, right? It's this idea of power, of, of, uh, of God doing mighty works. And the emphasis is on the supernatural power of Jesus or of God at work through Jesus as it breaks into the world around them. But you have to understand that in the other Gospels, when Jesus does a miracle, even though the emphasis is on the power of it, it's never just for the sake of a miracle. It's never a party trick. It's never just so that the masses come. There's always a meaning behind it that is greater than the miracle. And now the miracle that John speaks of is also a miracle. This is not sort of a spiritualized idea about something. No, no, it's a very real miracle. John gives all kinds of details, the place and the time and the, and the size of the, the jars. And I mean, he gives all the details because it's a very authentic miracle. But rather than calling it a miracle, he wants to focus on the meaning of it. And so he calls it one of Jesus' first signs because he wants us to think about what Jesus is saying by performing this miracle. So that is the question then. What is the sign? What is it that Jesus is communicating through this miracle? I mean, this is the first miracle that Jesus does. Of all of the miracles that he could have done, of all that he did do, why did he say this one is the first miracle that I'm going to do. What's he trying to communicate? And he, here's, here's the first thing he's going to communicate, and that's this, that Jesus is going to do something new. He's going to do something utterly new. You see, it's no accident that Jesus chose the six stone jars that were used for the Jewish purification rites. You see, those were jars of water that would have been used by the guests, the Jewish guests, they were all Jewish, that when they came, they would have ritually washed their hands as a sign that they were purified from uncleanliness. It, it was a, a symbol that they were living under the covenant that God had with the people of Israel. 
So those jars and, and what, the water that had, that had been in it represented the covenant that God had with the people of Israel. Of course, washing with water purification is kind of by nature a, a negative action in the sense that it simply removes something from you. It's un, the uncleanness is removed. But now Jesus takes those same empty jars and he fills them with new wine, with the best quality wine. And of course, if water purifies, wine brings gladness to the heart. Wine brings joy into a situation. Wine is a symbol now of something new that Jesus is going to do. In fact, in another place, Jesus makes this same kind of reference. He says this, no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. In other words, Jesus says, what I'm doing here is something new. In fact, when Jesus stepped into history, his purpose was to introduce something new. He didn't come to bring us something old. He didn't come to update something that already existed. He didn't come to take something that was good and make it a little better. He didn't, he didn't come to take the Jewish faith, Judaism, and, and just make a little bit better version of it. No, no, he came to bring something completely new, which was totally unexpected. I mean, if Jesus was the Messiah, if people thought that he was the Messiah, that would have meant that they thought that he would come to extend what God was already doing, just carry it on. And if Jesus was a prophet, well, then they would think that he had come to shepherd the people of Israel back to the old ways, to do more of what they'd been doing. And if Jesus, in their eyes, was a rabbi or a teacher, that meant that he came to clarify and to apply the teachings of Moses. But now Jesus, in this miracle, indicates, he, he proclaims boldly, in a very clear sign that he has come to do something that is utterly new. Something that is totally life-giving. It's an incredible sign that he performs here. The question is, what is the new? Well, what is this new that Jesus is going to do? Well, we know that there's two things. He, he's going to establish a new people, and he's going to establish a new covenant with those new people. And John the Baptist, he's already alluded to this. But most people missed it. Remember when he first saw Jesus, this is what he said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the, what? Sins of the people of Israel? No, no, he says the sins of the world. See, until this point, God's covenant, his promise had been with the people of Israel. They were to be his people, set apart, holy, doing purification rites when they came to weddings. But now Jesus comes and he introduces a new people of God. The new people of God wouldn't just be the Jewish people. It would include Jewish people, but it would be much broader than that. It would be international. People from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And, and because, because Jesus had come, he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Now we take this for granted. Because, of course, we're part of the new people of God. But it was totally new in that day. I mean, the Jewish people were, were God's chosen people. And now Jesus says, no, not, not anymore. It's a new thing. The, the church, unlike 
Ancient Judaism was not a regional thing, not a national thing. It's not tied to a temple or to a piece of land. The church was going to be international, global. It was a movement of people following Jesus from everywhere. So it was not a continuation of something old. It was the introduction of something utterly brand new. Jesus came to fulfill and complete the old, but to start something new. But it wasn't just a new people that Jesus was going to start. It was also going to inaugurate a new covenant. You know, the night before Jesus' death, he had this last supper with his disciples. It was the Passover that he was sharing with them. And the Passover, of course, was a, a, a deeply symbolic meal that represented the fact that God had rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But it was also symbolic of the covenant that God had made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And in the middle of this deeply symbolic meal where everything had different meanings, Jesus took the bread and he said, this bread now symbolizes my body. And then a little later, he took the cup. He said, and this cup now symbolizes the new covenant that is in my blood. And at that meal, he introduced a brand new covenant. He inaugurated a new covenant through his death and resurrection, which would happen over the next number of days. Jesus inaugurates a brand new covenant. But the kind of covenant that Jesus made possible between us and God was not only totally new, it was a different kind of covenant. You see, there are different types of covenants, just like there are different kinds of cars, right? I mean, they're they're all cars, but they're different types. There's Ford, there's BMW. And, And the kind of covenant that God had with the people of Israel was known as a bilateral suzerainty treaty. This was a conditional covenant. It was a covenant between two parties that were not equal, and it was based on the idea of if then. In other words, the covenant between God, who was much more powerful, obviously, than the people of Israel, was that if you are obedient, then I will bless you. If you do what I will say, then I will care for you. But if you are disobedient, then you will be cursed. If you are disobedient, then all kinds of terrible things will happen to you. It was a covenant based on performance. In fact, if you want to read literally a list of the blessings and the curses that would come from obedience and disobedience, you can find it both at the end of the the book of Leviticus and at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. That's the kind of covenant that God had with the people of Israel. It was based on performance. Now, the covenant foreshadowed the coming of Jesus, but Jesus didn't come to extend that covenant. Rather, he came to fulfill it, to complete it, to to be finished with that and to introduce something utterly new. And that's what he did. He introduced a new covenant. And the one that, the kind of covenant that we have with God through Jesus is a totally different kind of covenant. If, If the covenant that God had with With Israel was like a Ford, this one was like a BMW. Now, you know, if you're a Ford Ford guy, don't worry. Ford is a good car. The covenant that God had with Jesus was good. But BMW is definitely a step up. And that's that's the kind of covenant that God made uh, with with us through Jesus. It's called a promissory covenant. 
And it's the same type of covenant that God made with Abraham. And the promissory covenant is not based upon performance. It's not based upon one person doing you know, what they have to do. And if they don't, that they're punished. Rather, the person who makes the covenant with the other person promises that they will fulfill it completely. So the covenant that God makes with Abraham is that he would make Abraham into a great nation and that he would bless all of the world through his offspring. Now, that's not something that Abraham could possibly do on his own. He could barely have kids on his own. It's something that God promised and that God would do and that God did do. It's utterly unilateral and unconditional. And, and that's the kind of covenant that God made with us through Jesus. We're saved by faith through grace. And the covenant that we have with Jesus isn't if we're good, then he will bless us. If we are bad, then he will punish us. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is that we're righteous through Jesus. We're, we're justified because of what he has done. He has done it all through his death and his resurrection. Jesus inaugurates a new covenant. But in doing that, Jesus made the original covenant, the, the previous covenant, what we call the old covenant, he made it obsolete. It no longer applies. That, that's, that's why the writer of Hebrews says about the, the new covenant that we have through Jesus, he says this. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So here's what this means for you and me. Here's where it applies in our world. It means that we are the new people of God. And therefore, we are no longer under the terms of the old covenant. And on one level, we get that, right? I mean, on one level, we understand that we can have bacon for breakfast and lobster for dinner, and we can wear polyester to both if we want. But it means more than that. Because we're no longer under the old covenant, it means that we shouldn't that we can't afford to mix and match between the old covenant and the new covenant. We can't say that we, are, that we are saved by grace and then live as if somehow we have to perform to earn God's favor. We can't say that Jesus paid the price for our sins on the cross and then think that the hardship in our life, cancer or the, the death of a loved one, is somehow God's punishment for our disobedience. It's mixing and matching old covenant with new covenant. We can't say that we live by grace and then put all kinds of legalistic rules on the people around us. It means that, that we can't do away with the food laws and consider ourselves to be the new people of God and yet somehow hold that the modern secular state of Israel is God's chosen people and above reproach. You can't mix and match between those covenants. In fact, when we mix and match out of the old covenant, that's when we end up with all kinds of muddy theological waters. I mean, when we do that, that's where we get the prosperity gospel. When we do that, we end up judging non-Christians for not acting like Christians. When we mix from the old and the new, we end up kicking our son or our daughter out of the house because they're pregnant or they're gay. That, that's mixing old and new. When we do that, there's a tendency for some religious leaders to think that it's their responsibility to rail against the evils of society like some Old Testament prophet or to declare that a tsunami is God's judgment on a primarily, predominantly Muslim part of the world. That's what happens when we mix the old covenant with the new. 
Now, listen, that, that doesn't mean that the old covenant was flawed, the one that God had with Israel. No, no, it, it, quite the opposite. The, the civil and religious laws that God laid out in that covenant with his people of Israel were superior in every way to the civil and religious laws of any of the other nations surrounding the people of Israel. In fact, what seems to us sometimes you know, unsophisticated and sometimes even barbaric was incredibly revolutionary in its day. The, the kind of protections afforded to women and servants and foreigners and children were way greater, way much better than anything that other women and children and servants and foreigners and other nations lived under. See, this, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel was, was perfect. It, it was beautiful in that cultural setting in light of God's purposes for the nation of Israel in the world in that day. That's what the covenant was for. You see, the, the challenges that we face when we mix and match from the Old Testament and the, and the New Testament is not the result of the Old Covenant being flawed. Our challenges come from not understanding that, that the, the original covenant, the Old Covenant that God made with ancient Israel was with ancient Israel. It doesn't apply to us. It's never applied to us. And second, we forget that God's covenant with Israel was temporary. It was incredibly important. It was strategic. It was divinely ordained. But it was a temporary covenant meant to be fulfilled and completed in Jesus. The old covenant was grace. In fact, John, John speaks about this earlier in the, in the beginning of his gospel. He says that Jesus came. He, through Jesus we have received grace upon grace. The old covenant was Christ. It was like water. It was, it was good. But the new covenant that Jesus brings is grace upon grace. It is wine, the finest wine that brings life. This is what Jesus signaled when he turned water into wine. He, he was doing a new thing. That's why it was Jesus' very first miracle. The question is this. Are there places in your life where you're mixing and matching between the old covenant and the new covenant? Because when you do that, it gets confusing, doesn't it? It gets complicated. I mean, when you do that, it gets hard. Unless, of course, you want to be judgmental. Or if you want to make the Bible say whatever it is that you want it to say, then it's convenient. Then it's really helpful. Then you could pick and choose whatever you want. You know, lobster and polyester for supper and judgment for the neighbors down the street. The question is, is where do you need to, to go back and maybe disentangle some of your thinking around this? Where is it that you need to go back and, and look again at the teachings of Jesus and see them in light of the Old Testament but not mixed and matched with the Old Testament covenant. Jesus', Jesus very first miracle signals that he is doing something new. But then on top of that, he signals that this new thing that he's going to do, this new, this new thing that he brings is going to be incredibly rich in grace. It is going to be lavish. It's going to be extravagant. 
And here's how we know that. The, the jars that he fills, each are t- with wine, each are 20 to 30 gallons of wine. Do you know how much wine that is? That's the equivalent of about six to 900 bottles of wine. I mean, that, that's not a quick trip to the liquor store. That, that's a truckload of wine. And do the math on that. What does what a good bottle of wine cost? I mean, figure out the kind of math there. Jesus is, is being incredibly lavish. It's extravagant what he does. But remember, it's a sign. It, it's a symbol. You see, the kind of grace that Jesus is going to pour out. The kind of freedom that he offers to those who put their trust in him. The kind of hope that he gives for the future. The price that Jesus is willing to pay in his body for our sins. The kind of covenant that he willingly makes with us. I mean, all of it is lavish and extravagant. All of it is way beyond what we thought or dreamed it would be. And it reveals his character. It reveals who he is. John says here at the end of this story that it manifests his glory. See, the new thing that Jesus is doing is glorious. It's beautiful. It's life-giving. If you truly grasp what it is that Jesus is doing, it should cause you to humble yourself. To put your life in perspective of your life in perspective in light of his life. It should cause you to bow your knee and worship to him. That he, the Son of God, come in the flesh, would do such goodness and kindness for us. That is, that is to his glory. It is a glorious thing. And John ends his story by saying this, that his disciples believed in him. See, the new thing that Jesus is doing calls us to faith. See, this is where where you should put your trust. This is who you should put your trust in. You know, when your world is on fire, when everything's going south, when there's trouble on the home front, trouble on on the western front, on the work front, I mean, wherever it is, You should go and tell Jesus. And then you should simply trust him. You should just leave it with him, knowing that he loves you so deeply, knowing that he is lavish with his grace and his kindness, and knowing that he sees things from a much broader perspective, and that he will work in your life and in your situation in a way that is best in the long run. Because he's doing something new. Because he's bringing a new way to know and to be related to God. Because you are part of his new people. This is the sign that Jesus gives when he turns water into wine. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Well, God, we just come to you today. And God, we thank you. We thank you that you've had this plan of salvation from before the beginning of time. And God, that you have worked this out throughout the years, throughout history. And that when Jesus came, he he did something new. A new way to relate to you. A new people to be part of. A new new way to know life through Jesus. And God, forgive us where sometimes we have mixed and matched. Where we have gone back to a covenant that is old and obsolete. Rather than going with the new covenant that you have related to us through Jesus. And God, we acknowledge the the beauty and the grace of the old covenant. We acknowledge it was part of your plans. 
But God, we're so grateful that we live now in the new covenant that comes through Jesus and that it is lavish and that it is beautiful and it's glorious and God, that, that we have hope and trust because of it. So God, we put our trust in you again. We follow you again. We thank you again for what Jesus did. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us today. I hope that you've been encouraged and strengthened. I hope you've been challenged to keep digging deeper into the word of God, to keep looking more carefully at what Jesus did and what he said and what it means for how it is you live your life. I want to end by reading to you the words of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews. In the opening paragraph, this is what he writes. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is who we serve. This is who we follow. May God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.